Welcome, fans, back to another episode of the Feathers and Field Goals podcast. I'm Daniel Steenkamer, and joining me once again, Bryce Leslie on the program. Bryce, we have a stacked uh, agenda to work through here today as we record. It's going to be just us today as we get to speak on a number of topics, really get deeper into the ramifications of Delaware's move to Conference USA in sports other than football, uh, which I know we've been looking forward to discussing because certainly football, the FBS elevation, that takes the headlines and for good reason. But at the same time, the several other sports heading to Conference USA will feel the impact of the move, having a whole new group of peers to compete with and whole new challenges to come along the way. So Bryce, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Dan. Thanks for the good introduction there. I been waiting to get to this topic for sure. We got a nice question heading into the second episode, but we had such a great episode with Nolan, so we couldn't get to it. Feeling really good today. We have a lot on tap. We have some current events we want to get to. Men's lacrosse with a big game today. We have softball and baseball down Virginia and Florida. I'm rocking the Atlanta United jersey because it's the kickoff of MLS season today. A big Atlanta United fan, as I talked about being a Falcons fan in, in, in the past podcast with Nolan. So, Excited about that, excited about the Blue Hens, excited to dive into a lot today. Absolutely. There's no question about it. And you touched on men's lacrosse. That's a sport that we'll discuss in terms of conferences later on, as, as soon as that uh, future associate membership gets worked out somewhere along the way, as we know there are a number of sports, including Delaware men's lacrosse, that do not have CUSA in its future, because of course, that's a sport that is not sponsored by Conference USA, but one of those sports that is sponsored by CUSA is men's basketball. And Bryce, you've done great research into kind of getting a look at what Delaware men's basketball is headed for when it comes to uh, its future in CUSA, how the comparison and contrast will look compared to life in the CAA. In what ways will Conference USA be more of a challenge for Delaware men's basketball? Yeah, I I do think one thing that hasn't really talked about before is, is definitely travel is a big part of it. The Blue Hens, it's not going to be one of those things where, you know, you're going to Philly for one game and then back to UD or you're going to Williamsburg and then back up to Towson on your way home. Travel's going to be a big factor in it. For football, you know, you're traveling four games out of conference to these locations once a week. But these other sports that play more frequently are definitely going to feel it a little bit more. And when you're playing these Thursday, Saturday games, it's going to be a lot. I did look into some things. Curious to see, like, how Conference USA has really handled things to start. Liberty's journey because they're the northernmost team currently. Right now, there's only nine teams because Kennesaw State is joining next year. The Blue Hens the following year, a 12th member, maybe incoming later, maybe a team even more north than us in UMass. But that's something we'll, we'll definitely dive into later. But looking at the travel for Liberty this season, their conference schedule, they had a Saturday game at Western Kentucky, and they didn't play until the following Wednesday at home. So three days of rest there. They played Sunday at Louisiana Tech. They didn't play till the following Thursday. So it's another three days of rest. Saturday, they played at Jacksonville State, and it was their only game of that week. And they played the following Thursday against New Mexico and at UTEP. So they had a three-game road trip there in the span of eight days. But they had four days of travel between the Jacksonville State and the New Mexico State game. And then the Thursday-Saturday game was New Mexico and UTEP, but those are about 40 miles apart. So that's not too bad when you only have one day of travel. That's a normal travel over here in the CAA. Uh, The last two, Saturday at Sam Houston, they didn't play until the following Thursday. And then they're off for a week after that. And then their last road game is Tuesday, this upcoming Tuesday at Middle Tennessee. 
and they do not play until Saturday at home. So that's another three days of rest. So the only time they're playing a normal CA schedule is when they're home, the Thursday, Saturday slate. The only exception was when they did the UTEP New Mexico trip. I could talk about only four 40 miles apart. Outside of that, they're giving three to four days in between their games when needing to travel. So we'll see how that maybe changes when you have an even number with the Owls next year in Kennesaw State. Maybe we see that with change with us and Liberty being travel partners. Maybe that will change things. So I like how they protected the Flames a lot, though, this season. That was interesting to look at. So that kind of like lightened how I felt a, a little worried about the travel for the Hens because that's a big thing. The Hens were on the road a lot earlier in, in this conference schedule this year, non-conference schedule. So that's my biggest thing I, I was worried about with the move when you're playing two to three games a week. Certainly, that's a great case study you did, Bryce, is taking a look at, look, Liberty's currently the northernmost member in the conference, so let's see how they've handled the Flames, and I think you used the words, take care of them. Uh, Yeah, that definitely speaks volumes, and to give you an idea, at least, a sense of, okay, you get New Mexico State and UTEP in that same weekend, as you might expect, or maybe if it's not a weekend, it's still in in whatever several set of days we're talking about, uh, you get those two out west uh, in the same pair, and then when you are making more of those sporadic, longer trips that are in isolation for a single road game, you're getting those several days of rest to follow. So I, I like that you looked at that. And then uh, even beyond that, just looking at the body of teams in Conference USA in the sport of men's basketball, I, I begin to wonder just how beneficial it could be for Delaware as, a, as an athletic department to be in a group of men's basketball schools that are also playing FBS football. So there isn't necessarily the same hodgepodge of schools where for some men's basketball is that flagship sport for there being a lack of football. So I think as recently as the College of Charleston, right? The College of Charleston just came to Newark and really put on a clinic, right? And, and Pat Kelsey has Charleston on a heater in the last year plus. And now that's not only because that Charleston doesn't play football, but certainly there is some element of Charleston can be the main show in town when it comes to the basketball scene because the school isn't also putting resources and attention and marketing and fan support into football. So that applies to UNCW as well, to Hofstra, uh, to Drexel in in Drexel's best years. So Delaware men's basketball, I'm not going to say it's going to feel relief uh, of being Conference USA because there are certain numbers that might tell you the top of Conference USA is going to pose that many more challenges, but uh, to the hens. At the same time, though, not having to have a Thursday night against Charleston is probably going to be uh, for the better for Delaware, uh, just because where Delaware men's basketball sits in the overall program. I mean, this this is Nolan called it a football school on our last episode, and I don't think anybody listening to our show, especially if this is your third episode, if you've been been with us since episode one, you probably would agree with that sentiment, right? But that's not to discredit men's hoops. It's just to acknowledge the overall institutional background and context of uh, where men's basketball fits into everything and how that can kind of change how you're recruiting and competing against uh, other schools in your league. So it, it's just a cultural difference, I think, in some ways, uh, the, the student section support and that kind of thing. Certainly a good turnout against Charleston student-wise, but just the way it's laid out at Delaware, you know, you, you, football comes to the top of your mind, and then that's never the case at Charleston or at Hofstra, these places that are perennially strong, UNCW in men's basketball. So that's not to write off any excuses for Delaware while it's still in the CAA, but when it enters Conference USA, it will probably be among several more not like-minded Maybe like-minded is the word because you're, you're a men's basketball program in Conference USA that is always also uh, being paired alongside football in terms of who's getting that uh, highest profile attention. Yeah, exactly. You make great points there, Dan. I you know, a big thing with the with the fan support as well that a, a lot of people you know discuss is Delaware has a long winter break. 
we don't start back until probably the second week of February usually. So you have that five week winter term there to start the year. So when students are getting back, they're only here for really like one home slate to finish the season. So it when students are getting back, you're playing those non-conference schools in the beginning and they get back for spring semester and they, they really don't know who the new players are. So that's one of those things where you take that big chunk out in, in the first month of conference play. That's that's definitely big. But I, talking about what you said about moving to a conference about with football minded focus, also men's basketball is really strong over there as well. It's not I think people were a little bit sidetracked with the move for football of how that's going to be bigger on a scale and thinking that it's going to be on the same scale for Conference USA, I really don't think that's going to be the case in terms of the quality of play. Something that I dove into was I'm a big analytics guy, big numbers guy. I always talk about that. Looking at Ken Palm is what I use for a lot of things. Net is also a similar format used, but for this, it's Ken Palm. I was looking at the the average of schools in the conference. When when you look at the top, the current top nine teams. In, in the conference, actually, I did the top 10 for each, and I excluded Delaware from from CA as well, just to see how that will look without us. Looking at the average, Conference USA finished with like an average Ken Palm score of like 195, and CA finished with an average of 190. So really close in quality there. But when you really dive into the full scale of CAA, CA's number gets really dropped down because you have schools that are in the 300s and like one of the worst 50 teams in the country with Hampton and NCA and T and William and Mary just made the cut at 325 there. So it, it, it definitely falls off a little bit for the back end. And in Conference USA, you're not really going to get that back end as much anymore. The worst team in Conference USA right now is Middle Tennessee. They're 288, which means they're around like the top 80, top 90 worst teams in the country, analytically speaking, but they, they're still finding ways to win out there. There's not really, you're not having really a cupcake weekend or, or on that scale or anything. And Louisiana Tech right now is ranked 79th in Kempom. CAA's best right now is UNCW at 102. And that's a pretty big gap. That's that's a difference of being, you know, UNCW, the winner of the CAA will probably be a 14 seed, maybe a 13, but I think probably a 14 in, in the tournament. And Conference USA has a chance to get up to a 12 if Louisiana Tech is the winner. Liberty is a really strong school out there as well. And it's good basketball. They play a different brand. So I think that's another thing that might be different. They play a really more physical game, even though it's funny because I've heard teams coming into into CAA talk about the difference of basketball. King Rice talked about it a little bit of just the physicality was different for them in, in their conference switch. But I, I do think Conference USA plays a more physical brand of basketball. I was watching one of their games with Louisiana Tech and they have some big guys. So I definitely think, that will also change things up as well. But looking at looking at a lot, I think there will be some adjustments. You know, you get used to similar brands. Charleston with Pat Kelsey there, the guys are different, but the, the format's the same for the team. They're, they're playing their brand of basketball. Uh, Northeastern's another team that lately they haven't been as good, but Bill Cohen's run a great ship there for many years. You're going to get to these schools and you're not going to know them as much. So it, it's going to, I think that'll be an adjustment as well that people don't really think about. Your point is well taken because you consider the reality that, you know, maybe along the way as a coaching staff, when you're breaking down film, you might see some crossover tape and you get in a sense of what some other schools may be doing outside of your league. But how many CAA schools 
have even been playing Conference USA schools out of league over the years during Martin Inglesby's tenure, right? Like, I just don't feel as though it's that many. There may have been a few occasions, and maybe that would be some fun video to dig up, see instances of where we can find CAA men's basketball versus Conference USA men's basketball head-to-head. Uh, but certainly, you would generally believe, even among Delaware's non-conference opponents who are not CUSA, even those non-conferences aren't playing CUSA programs that often, just with the geographic differences. So uh, Delaware really is heading into a spot where there may be uncharted territory. And in the near term, there's no time to look ahead or, or, uh, or, or, you know, turn the page into those CUSA film breakdowns, because not only do we have this March coming up for which Delaware is eligible in the conference tournament in the CAA level, but also the following year uh, into spring 2025. So uh, Delaware uh, certainly has the benefit of not having the James Madison experience uh, with the CAA bylaw change, as we know, maintaining that postseason eligibility in all sports other than football. And I know football isn't the topic of this episode, but of course, football excluded because of the scholarship count increase occurring as we get into the fall 2024 football season. So that will take Delaware over the FCS maximum. But beyond that, men's basketball, women's basketball, I mean, these programs are going to be certainly locked in on the CAA into the next school year. But certainly a lot of intrigue about how will Delaware respond when it's facing bigs who are recruited from completely different areas of high school ball in the country, completely different AIU areas in the country. Uh, and Delaware hasn't really seen those kind of athletes uh, most times in the CAA schedule. But there are a lot of great CAA big men. We just saw Ante Berzovich in Charleston, and, and not, he was not the only one on the Cougars who was, uh, who was a big, who was doing damage. Amari Williams from Drexel is about to arrive on Monday night. Uh, for Delaware's rivalry game on CBS SN. So it's definitely a, a situation where the CAA maybe prepares UD in some respects, but also there's just a lot of unknown to it that is even more complicated maybe than the football sense where you can say, okay, football is going to be deeper opponents. They obviously have had more years to build that FBS uh, scholarship count, even when you look at schools who are also recently moving up from the FCS to the FBS and CUSA. Sam Houston, Jacksonville State, Kennesaw State, they will all have had a bit more time Uh, than Delaware. So there could be depth uh, issues or thoughts there. But when it comes to men's basketball, when it's five on five out there, you're still running maybe, you know, eight or nine deep or what have you. And it's going to come down to who has the athletic edge close to the basket and and, uh, which teams are you going to have to learn quickly how their style of play has been built over the years, because it's hard to face Charleston to begin with. So I can only imagine if you're facing Charleston for the first time, like if, 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 I were a new CAA school and I was playing my first CAA schedule and I was seeing Charleston for the first time this year, that would be that much harder than if you already know what you're getting into. So uh, not that it's a situation where everybody doesn't already know how strong Charleston is, but just being out there and and seeing them at floor level is a totally different uh, eye opener. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I'm talking about that. It's going to be hard for Delaware to prepare for these teams out of the gate, but the same thing, no one knows who we really are either. So it, it works both ways. And, and from that front, and you think Delaware is going to have some turnover to figure out. I, Martin Inglesby, new mindset, losing a lot of guys in the portal that he's recruited early on in their career, losing them on. We talked about it. Jameer Nelson, of course, came from George Washington. Justin Mutz came from High Point, I believe it was. Both of them moved on to TCU and Virginia Tech, respectfully. Andrew Carr is having a great season for Wake right now. But you've seen Ethiel Horton. Uh, daily move on in the past. Nate Darling move on to prof- his professional career. So it hasn't been hasn't been easy. And I, I think the new mindset is to keep up with the portal and make it instead of instead of losing your momentum, you know, make it your own. 
So you, we got six guys in this in this class here, and but Trent, this is going to be his last year. Ray, it's going to be his last year. Next year, if they're with us, Jair and Drumgold, it's going to be their last seasons. So by the time we're in Conference USA, we're not even going to know who's going to be the main core. So that will be interesting. They're going to have to figure out who the core is moving forward, if it's going to be the portal or if they're going to keep adding guys in the high school class. So yeah, and it'll be fun to follow. Martin Inglesby said before this season started, as much as how Delaware would like to be the destination rather than, and I'm paraphrasing at this point, but a stop along the way, right? Like the, this, the idea is Delaware can be that destination and maybe Delaware will have more success pitching itself at the men's basketball spot in that way when the entire athletic department feels the rise of having the higher profile of being an FBS member. And at the same time, men's basketball at Delaware should feel a boost when its conference peers are earning higher seeds as far as auto bids go, where they're destined to be bracketed in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, exactly. I If, if I had to give my, my last little take on men's theirs, I think they could go and be a top four to five team consistently every year in the conference USA. I think it'll be very similar to where we see things now in the CAA. I do think this program can take the hump. I just think there might be there might be some development things and a, a change of change of schedule coming. So moving on to women's basketball, obviously when I was looking at things, Stony Brook is really strong in the CAA this year. Middle Tennessee in the C- conference USA is even better. Their net is at 37. Which mean, and they're projected to be an 11 seed in the bracket right now, which means you're one of the best mid-major programs in the country. So they are really, really good. Obviously, is it like that every year? That's always the question. You have a good program now. But looking at the the net over in the conference as a whole, Conference USA right now is at about 187, and CAA is about 216. But when you, take, when you only calculate the top nine for CAA, it's at 162, which is below Conference USA there. So I... I do think I do think similar styles for the women's as it is the men's. I think there's going to be an adjustment in terms of the travel, in terms of the type of teams you're playing against. But generally, I do think that the women's program is maybe moving into the best way to put it is a weaker conference right now in terms of the general consensus of what teams are playing against. Because you take Middle Tennessee out, the net moves up about 20 spots. So in terms of like the middle of the pack there, it, it might be easier in terms of who you're playing against, but there's not really the amount of weak teams that you're playing against. So I, I think the schedules will be a little bit similar for the men's to the women's. Yeah, taking a look at how Conference USA stacks up on the on the women's side so far this season, Middle Tennessee and Florida International, those overall records really jump out at you. Uh, the Blue Raiders of Middle Tennessee State are already uh, uh, sitting at 22 wins overall, 22 and four. FIU at 18 and eight. So those are the programs that really are taking it to teams, not just within the league, but out of conference. Of course, I'm not saying anything you couldn't deduce from the records themselves there. But point being, other than that, the overall records don't jump off the page at you, uh, even among the teams in the middle of the pack or towards the upper half. Still, Liberty, Western Kentucky, uh, New Mexico State. So. Delaware is, is a spot where Delaware has been in women's basketball toward the peak of the CAA over the years during various uh, golden years in the program. Certainly, Elena Deldon's name is, is household, and, and uh, it goes without saying, but Jasmine Dickey uh, being a cornerstone of uh, the CAA championship team that Delaware had under Natasha Adair, 
not not all that long ago, uh, the same year as the men's team took down uh, that CEA crown as well in that 21 to spring 22 season. So um, Delaware is in a spot where as much as this year has been uh, growing pains along the way, close losses and really frustrating losses with the way Delaware has been uh, having trouble holding on to the basketball and, and going through really, really brutal scoring droughts. Uh, Delaware is still getting valuable contributions from uh, really young players on DS3CA. Grace Sunback come to mind. You think about CA elevating to the st- regular starting role has been really, really impressive. And Dariana Howard is another big for Delaware who has been really, really great uh, to see grow over the year as a young player and put in very valuable minutes as Delaware continues to find the right combinations while Michelle Ojo has been hurt uh, throughout various times of the year and been unavailable. Grace Sunback wasn't even available to start the year really through non-conference play. So Sarah Jenkins has had her work cut out for her in finding the right uh, combos to get this done. And all the while, Delaware's held leads late in games, or at least in the second half of games and along the way of contests, and has not been a good team at finishing. And Delaware at least got a very convincing win last night as we record this here on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Delaware got a Friday night win against UNCW uh, in really, really convincing fashion by the math is going to escape me, but this was going to be decided by in the neighborhood of 30 points. You could tell early on. I mean, Delaware jumped all over the Seahawks early. So uh, that necessarily doesn't tell you as much because UNCW's uh, been extremely uh, deficient this year. Uh, but all the while, you still have to credit Delaware for getting business done at home in really, really easy, breezy fashion in a way that's been hard for Delaware to attain when playing even the middle of the conference in the CEA, let alone the top. So I get caught up talking about Delaware women's basketball this year just because the Conference USA makeup on paper doesn't look all that different than the CAA. That bell curve is still there. You have a couple top-tier teams. It just seems like in the CAA, the roles have changed a bit because as much as Drexel and Delaware had been those top teams uh, throughout the years, at least in my lifetime, along with JMU and Old Dominion earlier on uh, in league history, now it's Stony Brook and, and, and Charleston. And you look at NCA and T on the women's side this year in the CAA. So the names are changing a bit in the CAA. And in Conference USA, we'll just have to see how fluid it is. You know, how, how easy is it or difficult is it to crack that top tier, top two set of teams? And I don't even want to use the word easy. That's probably a terrible word to use because in nowhere is it easy <laughs> to get that done. But you know, just what is the degree of difficulty to really make your mark in a new league? We're about to find out. But I circle back to... Delaware's young core, Charissier, Howard, Sunback, really impressive recruiting work uh, done by Sarah Jenkins, certainly has a positive vibe in some respects. has a great sense of humor and great personality, but it's also hard on her team as, as well. And so it seems like her personality gives her players the best of both worlds and uh, the recruiting outcomes when you consider that along with uh, her style of personality and the way she uh, brings her team together th- through as much adversity as there's been this season. I think that could bode well into heading into a new conference. That would be the optimistic take. The less optimistic take would be it has been a struggle to win those key CAA games. And so you, you just wonder about what is the momentum that Delaware will be taking into Conference USA. Certainly need to see uh, some 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 uh, deeper advances into the CAA tournament again in order to really feel the momentum going into CUSA. But I would have to say that there are a lot of positives here that might be hidden because the overall record and conference record for Delaware women's basketball this season, not as impressive. And yet on Sunday, Delaware still has a huge game at Towson. So by the time this comes out, uh, that game will have been played. But if Delaware is able to get a win in that ball game, it would be monumental in the CAA women's basketball standings. Right now, Delaware is six and seven in league play, Towson seven and six, but the Blue Hens 
already took down Towson at home earlier this season. So if you're listening to this and Delaware has gotten a win at Towson on Sunday, February the 25th, well, then that would tie Delaware up with Towson in terms of conference record. And then UD gets a tiebreaker. So certainly give credit to Delaware for putting itself in a spot where it can play meaningful basketball in late February in terms of working its way more towards the uh, middle of the CAA standings. And that would give Delaware that much more a chance to build more energy heading into CUSA. Thanks for that, Dan. That was definitely good coverage there. And I think we're doing a really good job at blending two of our segments, current events, the future all into one. We're doing a really good job on that. Talking about currently, I, I do think Sarah Jenkins was dealt a really difficult hand. You know, the team that won the tournament played together for a good amount of time. You have Jasmine Dickey, Ty Battle, Lizzie O'Leary, Paris McBride, a good core there. Then Ty Skinner was really young and came in and played really well as well. Really solid team, really old. They lost everyone. They lost everyone in the coaching staff to Arizona State. The players due to graduation. The players not only currently on the roster at Arizona State, but also recruits coming to Delaware to Arizona State. So there was a lot of turnover that she came into. A really young head coach. She came in. She's Right now she's playing a trio of freshmen in Sunback, Howard, and Tricia, like you were saying. Really turning the corner into what we see on the court. And right now you're seeing Sydney Boone has been a really solid addition from the portal this year. She has another year after this year. All of Chloe Wilson, Tara Cousins, and Rebecca uh, Demike. Did I say that right, Dan? Demike? Uh, Demica. Yes, yes, sir. And she's, she's a three-point okay. sharpshooter. You want to talk about Kevin Riley on the men's side, not to make any undue comparisons, but both are such talented three-point shooters. And Demica, when she's in that corner – for three, she's been red hot lately, so wanted to give her a special mention as well. But not to cut you off, Bryce, uh, go ahead. No, yeah, and sorry, Rebecca, for that as well. A lot of names to remember, so. But those three have another year if they want it as well. And then you have a couple high school seniors joining the team next season that were highly recruited. I was looking at 6'5", Ford Center, Gianna Johnson. 6'5", is pr- pretty, pretty solid for, for the woman's side of the game. And excited to see her come in. And she had multiple offers from high major programs. I think I saw Syracuse, Seton Hall. So you're getting ACC, Big East talent coming in into the fold. And then you also have 5'10 guard Trinity Vance coming in. I think she posted before she signed as a hen. She had 28 offers from a selection of schools, including SEC's Old Miss. So Sarah Jen- Jenkins has done a great job. You have the trio of freshmen coming in and playing immediately. You have the two incoming freshmen that were highly recruited. You have some... Stability now, things are looking up. You came into a program where you really had to rebuild things completely. We talk about the men's team. When they go to Conference USA, we really don't know who, who might be on the roster at this point. I think in two years, we kind of see what's gonna what the roster is going to be for the women. So I feel like this is a turning point incoming for the Lady Hands on the court. This season, you're working through, through some growing pains, like you said, but you can still find some good with the bad results in the late games. You're seeing a lot of things you rather make those mistakes as a freshman than a senior. So we're really getting a chance to see stability in the program. And I know Jenkins and her staff will be very thankful for that if everything stays together. Yeah, it's a great compare and contrast you made on the on, on the front of, hey, the roster building blocks are there. Now it's just a matter of the retention of those talented youngsters for Delaware women's basketball. Because you watch Shuri C.A., for instance, just have such composure on the block, finding different ways to create her shots and getting those shots home. That's something that's going to be noticed by other programs, maybe even programs a step up on the uh, college basketball ladder. And as much as we 
you know, may bemoan it as, as folks who follow and cover and in many cases are rooting for the mid-majors of the world. Certainly, you, you don't want to speak into existence the, the tampering of the transfer portal, but Delaware is going to have to be sure to uh, keep uh, Andia Charissier in Newark as long as possible, make sure that uh, she's feeling right at home. I had the pleasure of uh, seeing her uh, join the Blue Hens Basketball Coaches Show uh, not too long ago, and it was her first time on the show. And so <laughs> she's already getting to do that many more uh, of the Blue Hen experiences, right? And so Delaware wants as much of those as possible, no doubt, with the way she's playing, certainly putting together a CEA Rookie of the Year argument. I think it just adds to, I was saying, you have to adapt to the new times. Instead of recruiting from the outside every year, you really have to recruit every day from the end. You have to keep everyone internally knowing what their role is, what their expectations are moving forward, making sure that they feel part of the Blue Hen family. And from what I see, it looks like Sarah Jenkins is doing a really good job at that. So a lot to get excited for the, the women's on the court. And I, I really think it, things are definitely exciting. Obviously, we still have this season to play here and seeing how far we can go in the CEA women's tournament. But in two years, we'll, I'll be excited to see them in Conference USA. I, I, I do want to now transition over to the spring sports and we can talk a little bit about their current a little bit about their future uh, first let's stay with with the ladies uh on the diamond delaware softball so do you want to go over you know maybe they started a storm in in, in virginia yesterday so right. we talk a little bit yeah about delaware that softball picking up its first ever win over a big 12 conference opponent as the blue hens took down the iowa state cyclone so good use of storm there bryce i mean it's very appropriate because also, I know that weather has affected the schedule of games to be played there at UVA in Charlottesville, Virginia. But an 8-5 to five win by Delaware over Iowa State. The Blue Hens scored four runs in that ballgame in both the third and fourth innings. That's how Delaware put up its runs. Eight runs on 11 hits. Delaware holding Iowa State to five runs on seven hits. And when you look at how it happened in, in the box score, uh, Delaware's Emily Winburn had the win in the circle. She had those four and two-thirds innings in relief. No earned runs with the four strikeouts. Winburn, such a strong pitcher for Delaware throughout the course of her career, and that continues to elevate on, on a bigger stage, right? Facing a power conference opponent, great for Delaware to pick up that kind of feather in its cap early in a non-conference. And uh, Gianna Costaro uh, went one for three with a two-run home run offensively, so there were fireworks there. But Morgan Hess, Jules Garber, each going two for three, in the win. A lot of love being spread as far as how this lineup has its depth and making contact, bringing runners around, doing so far from home in Charlottesville, not as far as earlier in the season uh, for Delaware softball as the program was playing south to try to find that warmer weather, but certainly still in a different environment against a totally different foe. You don't run to Iowa State every day, but you get him here in this multi-team event and it's a great building block for Delaware. I, just to use that cliche again, it really is because it's a softball program that has high expectations this season. Uh, Jen Steele has had her, has had her team toward the top of the regular season finishes uh, in recent seasons, but hasn't had that CAA tournament success yet. So uh, Delaware really, really looking to finish its CAA era in softball strong and definitely great signs coming out of the Iowa State win. Dan, I have some great current event news for you here. Obviously, our listeners aren't going to get this in current events. The Delaware Blue Hens, who are currently playing Ohio's Iowa State right now for the second time, went into the seventh inning, losing six to one. They got it to six to five, and the Lady Hens just hit back-to-back -back home runs in the seventh, bottom of the seventh inning to win the game, starting things off with 
freshman bat Gianna Costero hitting her fifth of the season, and then Julia Boyette coming in and hitting the game-winning home run, back-to-back home runs. So what a start. And Boyette coming in from Duke has just been a great addition to the lineup as well. So Winburn also picks up the win out of relief again, but also great work on the mound from Morgan Hess as well to start things off, only giving up one run in three innings. So great. Wow. Just a great start for the Hens in Virginia. Rain pushed things off, but that's awesome. So I was really happy to bring that up as things were looking. It it literally just happened as you were talking about it. So 2-0 start against the Big 12 on the season. Things are looking up for that's so funny that the timing of it, Bryce, you're, you're seeing me yapping about X, Y, Z things that happened in the game that first occurred against Iowa State. And now <laughs> the live stats just refreshing and seeing that style of thrilling victory for Delaware. That's got to be one of our top moments here live on the, not that this is a live show, but they feel, it felt very live just then. <laughs> so way to be on the ball. Yeah, thanks for that. And I, that was great. So 2-0 on the weekend. They still have a couple games against Virginia and then they have another one this afternoon as well. But kind of, I also did some look of how Conference USA softball looks. Last season, Delaware finished after winning the conference regular season game, regular season a year ago. They finished with an RPI of 141 in all of college softball. Here's how the teams at Conference USA looked. Liberty, who was in the A sum last season, finished with an RPI of 25. So they were a top 25 team in the country, according to analytics. Middle Tennessee finished at 63, Western Kentucky 84, Louisiana Tech 98, Jacksonville State and Kennesaw State, and the A-Sun also finished with 101 and 104. You had a couple teams that played in the WAC last season, San Houston and New Mexico State. They finished with 145 and 177. And then you have Florida International at 172 and UTEP at 254. Obviously, I just said the 10 teams, nine teams in it right now, but four of them weren't in the conference last season. So I think the trends, what I'm trying to see about how Delaware's identity is going to fit in these new conferences, I think you're going to see a theme in every single one of these sports. I still think the conference is going to be seeing finding its identity. Softball, you have five teams last year not in it. Liberty, Jacksonville State, Kennesaw State, Sam Houston, New Mexico State. Kennesaw State isn't in it this year, of course, but they, they will be joining next season and us the following season after that. So I, I do think the identity of the league is also going to be found. But in the looks of recent data, it looks like Conference USA from the softball level is going to be really, really strong. In terms of a conference, they finished with an average score of 126 in RPI and CA finished with 214. So that's a very considerable difference, but I think it makes sense because it's naturally going to be tougher in the Southern regions on the diamond because they play year round down there and that that's your recruiting. It's just, it's right, a lifestyle. Right. So I, I, I think if, but if anyone can come in and be competitive immediately, it's going to be Jen Steele, who's a true gem of the Blue Hands. I've always said one of my favorite coaches to follow, and she's only found success everywhere. She's yeah, been. definitely. I want to say underrated too as a head coach, just because until you get that CAA title and that NCAA postseason appearance, so that really takes the lid off of of you and get and gets you that the household name recognition. If you're not one of those footballs and basketballs and things like that. But Delaware softball deserving its flowers because, my gosh, I mean, just in the near term, you you mentioned it, Bryce. I don't want to rehash it too much, but I was just getting my hands on the box score as well from this 7-6 to latest Delaware victory over Iowa State and a six-run bottom of the seventh for Delaware, including the two home runs in the bottom of the seventh to finish it out. Oh, oh my goodness. That's just, that's just theater. So I'm, I'm hoping we've got to have the video of that somehow. I mean, I'm sure the teams have tape, right? Like, I know this wasn't, 
streamed on ESPN Plus because UVA is hosting it. And I know the ACC Network Extra is carrying the UVA games that the Cavs are actually involved in. But I'm hoping that we can get our hands on Delaware softball can tweet out and post the even just team tape of that because the celebration had to be wild. But to, to get Matt on topic, uh, CUSA softball, it, it's been remade, as you touched on, Bryce, with the realignment that's obviously affected the entire league and, and really created the opportunity for Delaware to come aboard. And playing in the warm region, that Southeast footprint, is, I think, going to be to the benefit of Jen Steele and her staff having the opportunity to say to recruits who are from that area, hey, you, you, we're going to be visible in, in areas that you're used to and and, and have familiarity with and, and where you have family. And so even if you're coming to Newark, Delaware, which is maybe further north than you ever would have expected out of your college career, great campus to sell, great tradition of winning under Jen Steele. And at the same time, you're in a situation where you're going to have homecomings every so often. If, if you're from Texas, Delaware's going to be playing down there in the CUSA circuit. Uh, so I definitely think that there's a lot, a lot to like about having the ability to uh, play conference games to start the season that are in warm weather. Maybe Delaware won't have to have the same types of scheduling demands as far as non-conference goes, where early in seasons you really do have to schedule the non-conference away from home because it just isn't as practical uh, to be playing in Newark in February as often, although there is a Newark home game coming up for Delaware softball here later in February. But that aside, a lot of, lot of things that check the boxes for CUSA softball, but really looking forward to getting more data about it because – uh, you're still looking for seeing who really emerges as the cream of the crop this season in CUSA. The uh, point I just wanted to make too in that softball game, last one, just because it's current, it all it all started with two outs. So just an amazing run there for the Hens and huge win and huge momentum heading into the rest of the weekend. Over to the baseball side of things, the men's side on the diamond, we talked about Jen Steele as an underrated coach. I do think another one that we have is familiar to the podcast coach uh, Ma uh, Mamula here and I, I think he had a really solid first season there's a lot to to build here for sure he came in and I think he's the right man for the job I started out the year they're currently two and one they're heading down to Jacksonville unfortunately they got rained out last night but they will have a double header today Tyler August freshman on the mound really really excited to see him grow even more every year the bats look great so far Aaron Graber who he mentioned before was going to be the guy in right field his bat has looked phenomenal so far Aiden Kane is looking really solid so far at first base and at the plate as a lefty so really solid game the bats are looking like they're already living up already and definitely some potential early on the mound as well Great to see Delaware baseball as well get its home opener in as the Blue Hens defeated Delaware State in a Route 1 game that Delaware gets to raise the Route 1 rivalry trophy, which I'm not sure we're even going to see as often when it comes to the football side of things. This is not a football podcast, but it just got me thinking a little bit how many FBS programs are willing to accept a trophy or have a trophy game when they're playing an FCS school. So that might be something that has to get politically worked out along the way. But uh, for Delaware baseball, uh, playing in the cold, but playing in front of the home fans for the first time against DSU and then getting back down south uh, to face Jacksonville University. It, I'm in a difficult spot because I thought we'd have last night's game <laughs> if things worked out. Looking forward to seeing last night's game and then reacting to it here on this Saturday as we record, but still have the, the highlights that you've touched on. Also want to, in addition to agreeing with what you just said about uh, August on the mound and and, and Graber as, as an outfielder, Lesher at shortstop has been fun as well. Uh, Brett Lesher moving into 
that spot in the infield and the high praise we heard Coach Mamula offer uh, as far as his ability defensively has been something that's been cool to watch too early in the season. So uh, Delaware baseball, much of it will come down to the health of the pitching staff and the performance of the pitching staff as the year progresses. Delaware's offense is shooting for, you can check me on my memory, but eight runs a game, Bryce, right? So um, that, that's been a mark that Delaware baseball certainly exceeded against Delaware State. And then looking forward to seeing what the average is as non-conference play progresses. But maybe the more important average will be earned run average of, of the arms because uh, it's, it's really impressive to see so far how Coach Mams and his staff are identifying how to manage those innings when maybe there isn't the same depth as they'd like here early in the season. So seeing who who emerges as most reliable, both starting and relieving or opening a game and relieving, and then uh, just watching the uh, the ability of the staff to kind of control the inning counts and, and make sure that they can sustain uh, some pitching success over the course of the year. You, you pointed on everything that I wanted, wanted to touch there. I, the last thing that I guess I, I will add to the baseball is the Conference USA front of things. So Conference USA has been great in terms of baseball for a really long time. You have Dallas Baptist, who is a wagon. We talked about that in the first episode. Just a really, really strong program. You have Sam Houston State down in, in Texas, really solid program joining as well. Same with Liberty. They were both in the top 100 in, in RPI last season, playing in the WAC and the A-Sun. But Conference USA also just saw three teams in the top 100 leave to other opportunities in Florida Atlantic, Charleston, and Texas San Antonio. So the theme continues. I think this is a reason why Delaware is joining the conference. It's a conference still refining its identity. Conference CAA, really, really strong. Now you have Campbell in the mix. They were 13th in RPI last year. They make the tournament every single year. They've started out beating high major teams already. Northeastern, UNCW, Elon, Charleston, William & Mary, they're all in the top 100 in RPI from last season. So we're in a really strong conference now. So it's really hard to judge how things are going to be when we move over, because I do think Kennesaw state is also going to be a great addition for the baseball conference. They just beat Clemson 18 to one yesterday. So that was nuts. And it's going to be a good conference. I think the CAA is really, really strong. I think conference USA is refining its, its identity. And same things apply about the, the climate in, in the various locales that Conference USA is more concentrated in. And, and Delaware can be that, that northern outpost that Bob Hanna Stadium can make it a hard place to play for these schools that are more used to the uh, cushy weather, even in February and March. You come up to Delaware and it's not going to exactly be the same uh, lifestyle. So I, I bet you that's something that Delaware will embrace. And, and beyond those, uh, those uh, frivolous comments, it, it, it almost does ring true because uh, Gre Greg Mamula mentioned it to us, Bryce, right? about how Delaware, especially when it gets into this new conference, is going to look to embrace, hey, got to protect our home field. But especially, we know the elements. We're going to be swinging the ball with power out to right field. That wind's going to be a, a buoy behind it. Oftentimes, a strong wind out to right. And uh, those blustery days in, in the 302, uh, Delaware's going to look to have a good record on in CUSA play. Yeah, for sure. I want to jump over now to fall sports. Obviously, we want to talk about how it's going to affect the teams that are moving to Conference USA. Uh, the, the one that I want to touch on first, and that we still want to get to a couple things, so I, I want to kind of just get to these as, as fast as we can here, is volleyball. And volleyball, I guess I, I want to talk about current things. Kimberly Lambert signs a three-year extension uh, through the 2028 season. Could you kind of talk about Coach Lambert from how you feel, 
how the program is running, Dan. CAA champions. It's it's almost as simple as that, right? A Delaware Volleyball coming off of a great fall, really successful regular season. And then the question was for Delaware Volleyball as we work through that 2023 fall. Okay, the conference record looks really dominant. What's it going to come down to when the Blue Hens inevitably are going to see Towson in that league tournament? And overall, just taking a step back, 24-5 and five volleyball record in 2023 for Delaware, a 15-3 and three conference mark. 10 and 3 record at home uh, and 11 and 1 on the road. So all those splits look outstanding and then really when it mattered most for Delaware, the Blue Hens able to take down Campbell in the CEA semifinals in that CEA tournament down at Towson hosted by Towson. So the Blue Hens winning 3 to 1 sets in the semi, semi and then in the championship against number 1 Towson Delaware getting it done again 3 to 1 in those sets and the Blue Hens CEA champs able to represent the conference and face a really tough Missouri team over in Lincoln, Nebraska, which may very well be the volleyball capital of the United States uh, with the, the Huskers program playing host to Delaware and Mizzou in that NCAA tournament match. But for Delaware to reach that stage under Kim Lambert, certainly a well-deserved extension, really, really talented roster. Lonnie Mason has been a dominant player for Delaware uh, at outside hitter. Uh, the Blue Hens, this roster, when you look top to the bottom, I mean, Savannah Siemens comes to mind as well. Eski Basaranlar, it, it's a program that really has had the, the build over the years of these cornerstones I mentioned. And so you feel really good for those players that uh, they were able to bring home a title as Delaware remained eligible um, in the conference tournament. Although I do, I do want to check my timeline because, again, it gets a little – the whole fall in 23 gets a little murky when you think about when exactly did all this go down. Uh, Delaware had that – CA title match against Towson on November the 18th. That was actually right before the Conference USA stuff became formally <laughs> publicly shared. But uh, still, it, it looks really good for Delaware to um, get a, a ring. It, it, that might not be the only one either uh, for Delaware Volleyball uh, before before it moves on as well from the CEA. So hats off. Maybe it should literally be hats off um, as my, if you're watching on a, on a social media clip. Hats off because uh, Kim Lambert's built it up and the players really – rallied together and came through against a Towson team that's been a rival and a very, very strong program. I like the hats off. We'll definitely have to get that clip into one of the ones we well, post. I'm having a bad hair day week, too, so but... apologies to everybody in advance. <laughs> well, and like you said, what a season on the court for Delaware Volleyball. Wanted to jump over quickly into the transition to Conference USA after next season as well which is has one of the strongest mid-major programs in the country consistently. And that's the Western Kentucky Hilltoppers. Western Kentucky finished 30-5 and five last season. They won a game in the NCAA tournament, ranked as a sixth seed. I talked about wagons earlier. The Hilltoppers are a wagon when it comes to being on the court. They won eight of its last 10 Conference USA tournaments. Their record over the past five seasons is 142-14. and 14. That's a 91% win percentage for those that want that quick math. Dan, can you guess when the last time they won a they last time they've lost the conference USA. Okay, game. so WKU volleyball losing a conference game in CUSA. Probably, I think it might be a whole recruiting class ago, right? Like honestly, I would say about maybe like five years. You're exactly right. They lost October nineteenth in twenty eighteen that season, and they are just really, really strong. Delaware in that conference last season would have finished second in RPI if they were there, but they will be there soon. Coach Kim Lambert and a program may have an opportunity to hand the Hilltoppers their first conference loss in seven years by the time they face in the fall of 2025. So exciting to see that. 
No question, because that's the kind of team you think about, just to you put it in basketball terms, that's the kind of mid-major powerhouse that is a, almost rises to like a Gonzaga level, right? Where they own that conference. And so if you're the newbie on the block as Delaware, you're trying to take ownership, it's not going to come easily. That's obviously needless to say. So Delaware is going to have to uh, uh, see exactly how it stacks up. It's going to be a great measuring stick, a great ability for Delaware to have a conference opponent be a real indicator of how strong you have to build in order to be a really a national threat in the NCAA tournament. And the last thing I want to touch on Western Kentucky is their head coach, Travis Hudson, has been there for 29 seasons. So he's someone that has built a championship caliber team. Usually when you see these mid-major programs take take things over and they, they build a wheelhouse, they, they move on to the next level. I've talked about it with Pat Kelsey. Charleston fans aren't happy with me, but you got to face the truth. That's how it is at the mid-major level. You have a good coach, quality program. You can't blame someone for taking the next step, but Hudson has been someone that has wanted to remain at Western Kentucky. And when he took over the program, they finished seven and 26. So he's done a really, really solid job. He's won 10 Sun Belt regular season championships. And now he's over here in Conference USA, just really dominating on the force. So now I want to jump quickly over into women's soccer just briefly because we have one thing that we want to get to uh, for the first time here is women's soccer is another team that's going to be heading over to conference USA. Unfortunately, the men's won't be doing the same. The men's soccer is not sponsored by the conference. So that, that is something that the group will have to figure out as, as things move on over time. I just wanted to talk about after first season, coach Kelly Lawrence, I'm really excited to see how she builds this program up so far after this season goes. Yeah. Kelly Lawrence in charge of Delaware women's soccer. You think about how the blue hens got this past fall started a big win for the women's soccer program when they took down Syracuse. So an ACC win. We were talking about softball's power five wins and uh, Delaware beating Syracuse 1-0 all the way back on August 17th. That set a great tone. Uh, then uh, the game that followed up was a 1-0 loss to Liberty. So uh, actually, we didn't know at the time that that would be a bit of a preview of what was to come in terms of a future uh, conference rival. But uh, Delaware women's soccer on the whole hovered around 500 with that five and five and eight overall finish uh, for the season. I know you're going to touch on too, uh, Bryce, uh, uh, an incoming uh, player that we're going to be keeping an eye on on the women's soccer side. But for Delaware to take that step and win five games, just break through a little bit more offensively, have some more success in the offensive end compared to uh, the previous season. That was all well and good. And Delaware still separated itself from the bottom of the CAA this past season, uh, beating Hampton 9-1 to uh, back on October 19th on a Thursday night at Grant Stadium. So it wasn't as if Delaware women's soccer was you know, straddling towards the bottom of the CAA by any means, uh, but it will be interesting to see then that data point being a little, little less useful uh, when you look at how Delaware could fit into Conference USA women's soccer where New Mexico State uh, finished at the top of the league uh, in this past 2023 season, Liberty uh, was a quality opponent that Delaware had to face in non-conference, and Liberty finished 5-2-1 and one in CUSA games. So those are the two that stand out, and it's particularly interesting that Liberty uh, is that top-two team in CUSA women's soccer because you have to think, depending on how wide the recruiting radius will span for Delaware, Liberty, at least as the league is presently constructed, is going to be that program where Delaware is really com competing a lot in the overlapping recruiting battles. And so it just depends on what you're looking for as a student athlete, Liberty and Delaware are certainly different, just student experiences probably, but also uh, different 
uh, area, areas of the Mid-Atlantic, and it'll be that kind of shared battleground that Delaware will, will, will look to fight the flames with in CUSA on the women's soccer end. But Kelly Lawrence off to a good start in terms of uh, having the returnees to maintain that roster going into this past fall was certainly big for the continuity of the program. Yeah, and I wanted to touch on who is joining the Hens next year, and that's Radford transfer midfield slash forward Amy Swain to the team. Radford last season made the NCAA tournament after winning the Big South, and Swain was a staple in the team. She started 18 of the 19 games. She had four goals and an assist last season. In her career, she scored 16 goals and had nine assists and 60 starts, nearly 70 games played. So she's going to be a great addition. She has one year of eligibility left with the COVID year, and really excited to see how she does. She spoke on social media about it that Women's Soccer posted that She's here. She's ready for a challenge. She wants to get the Blue Hens in the NCAA tournament as she was there as a main piece for Radford playing against Clemson there in the first round in Clemson. So really excited. And I think you're seeing a trend here. We've talked about Amy Swain joining. We've talked about Tyler August, who could have went anywhere he wanted as a hen. We've talked about how Sarah Jenkins is selling the program. We've talked about in the past Martin Inglesby and Ryan Cardi getting these recruits. And we talked about Kim Lambert really building a good program. And Jen Steele doing a really good job. Freshman Gianna Costero, one of the best freshman hitters in the country. I think it's not just selling their programs, but the coaching staff is doing a really good job selling the school. This is a great time to sell the school and sell the program. Now is the time to be Blue Hens for sure. Chrissy Raywalk says it a lot or has said it a lot in the past. You know, and all boats rise. People who, you know, are paying exclusively attention to football might be like, ah, oh, well, you know, we really, really want to win football games. Yes, that's true. And I'm pretty sure this administration at Delaware on the athletic side and even up to the president, Asanis, right, have put a lot of effort into winning football games. Um, but at the same time, having broad-based success as an athletic department is key to being attractive to a new conference, which is exactly what Delaware was able to achieve with CUSA. So I definitely think that you got to give Chrissy Raywalk a lot of credit for uh, the coaching hires, the moves have been made that maybe were of, of, a, of a lesser profile, didn't get as many clicks, certainly as hiring Ryan Cardi and, and figuring out men's basketball's Martin Inglesby, which has been a uh, move that's aged really well. So you just look at, it, though, keeping a hold on Rolf Van de Kirkhoff on the field hockey side. I know that we didn't get to mention field hockey in particular earlier, but uh, you know, keeping Rolf Van de Kirkhoff in place, hiring Jen Steele, the, the list goes on. Kimberly Lambert's a CAA champion now. It's, it's, it really is um, a, a good body of work that we've actually discussed through here on this episode. Right, and it's hard to touch everything in one episode. I just want to talk about men's tennis as well. They're undefeated right now, playing at Monmouth today, who is also undefeated. So we'll see how that goes. But men's tennis, who is ranked for the first time at currently number 45, is doing a great job as well. Women's lacrosse, men's lacrosse didn't get to them nearly as much. It's because there's so much to talk about, like we said. And we have so much more to get into in a couple episodes talking about CAA hoops. But women's lacrosse plays tomorrow noon at home in Delaware Stadium against Kent State. And the men's play a big game at Penn today before hosting Michigan at home in a week, which the men's lacrosse, two big games coming up because the CAA has generally been a one-bid league still. So if you, if you don't win the conference tournament and you're playing some, some solid programs and uh, among the likes of Towson, and obviously winning the tournament is a goal for the team every season. But if you don't do that, winning games like Penn, who aren't ranked anymore but were to start the season, and Michigan are games to build your resume just in case that scenario. Right, it's essential. Happen. It's absolutely essential. And for Delaware, men's lacrosse is the program we touched on earlier going to not even be in the CAA uh, in, in short order. So 
you, you want to have a name for yourself that is maintained on the national scale through winning quality non-conference games. Certainly, Delaware has the conference, the CAA titles to, to back up its name as it pitches its, itself to wherever it may wind up as an associate. But um, the most important thing is, what have you done for me lately? And as far as this season goes, having that resume bolstered by uh, getting Michigan at home and hope, hopefully for Delaware men's lacrosse's sake, having a chance to protect that home turf against Michigan and uh, going on the road for that game at Penn today, a quick trip, looking to take care of business against really the uh, most uh, most well-fit opponent, well-matched opponent the Delaware has seen so far this year. Right. So I guess now we talked about as much as we can with it. I know we missed teams and we'll definitely get those in, in future episodes. And I guess the, the last one I, I wanted to point out is also the women's side of tennis. They also just won a big game against Penn State as well. So on, on the tennis courts, both men and women take down the Knicks big wins. I know that was always the, the catchphrase on social media. Big, big 10 wins. Uh, some of these P5s are going to have to watch out because it really, is, it really is an underrated part of the CUSA and FBS move is it, it's wild how once Delaware is in that FBS video game, not this summer, but the following summer that's put out by EA, just more people knowing that Delaware is in fact Division One, knowing that the Blue Hens have that more recognized name and logo, it, it may well even help tennis recruiting and everything everything under the sun. Uh, it, it, it could be anything uh, anything of, of a help as far as the publicity goes. Right. All right. So we're going to get into the recruiting rundown portion of today's episode. So we'll get into things today. What I want to know, too, as far as I'm talking to the formerly at UD recruiting, I want to know... What is with the Florida Georgia recruiting push? Because it's just the time of year. Is it the, the position group that's being targeted? It's certainly very noticeable. Delaware certainly is still also going to be looking to stay in its main radius and protect that a driving radius of three to five hours, however you want to call it. But certainly seems like we're seeing more of a dedicated focus toward the southeast. Is that something you're seeing as well? And then if so, uh, what what goes into that? Yeah, you're right there, Dan. Uh, on National Signing Day, me and you were able to attend Ryan Carty's press conference. He spoke about when asked about signing more players with Southern roots, he pretty much stated that the recruiting focus isn't, okay, we're now playing FBS football. We can only get players from Florida or from Georgia or from Tennessee. It's more about we now have the opportunity to expand our search and open up more avenues to find the right people for the program. So you can now see that wider net casted so far, definitely in the recent recruiting classes with McKinley, Nash, Scott, and Wilson all committing in the new calendar year and were signed in February uh, and not December in that early signing period. And, and the current 25 offers I've reported on so far, 20 of these guys are from Georgia, 10 are from Florida, and one each from South Carolina and Tennessee. We've offered 49 current juniors in high school and two current sophomores. So that's that's definitely some things. You, you see a trend. The majority of the offers are coming there so far. From our side of things, yes, we're playing FBS football, so our program is more attractive to athletes anywhere in the country. But in particular, these athletes in the South have another reason to be more attracted to the Blue Hens. They'll be playing four road games in Conference USA each season. One of these schools is in Miami and Florida International. Another, You have Jacksonville State, Eastern Alabama, close to the line there of Florida. You have Middle Tennessee State, Western Kentucky, Louisiana Tech, not so much close, but depending of where you live in that Florida, Georgia area, but still in a drivable distance for a weekend, for sure. You also have Kennesaw State just north of Atlanta coming into the mix. So that's six schools more accessible to the hometowns of these athletes. 
instead of 11 and 12 trips up to the Mid-Atlantic every year to watch their sons play on the football field, that cuts down in about half. So we know why Delaware are after these types of players, but now the program's attractiveness is a two-way street. We also have coaches with Florida and Georgia ties to them with uh, special teams coordinator and safeties coach Art Link, defensive back coach Kariko Wright, and new defensive line coach uh, Kyrie Hawkins, which will be huge moving forward. In the Another thing, coach. too, about taking keeping tabs on Delaware football's recruits is uh, positionally, right, in particular, we know that Ryan Cardi was looking to get get a bolster in terms of, hey, there's going to be open production as far as pass catchers go with the uh, moving on to Jordan Townsend, Joshua Youngblood, Braden Bros, Chandler Harvin. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge laundry list of, of pass catchers who were uh, so phenomenal in terms of racking up the yards for Delaware. How do you think Delaware did in particular when it comes to uh, the pass catchers and and who's who, who even is going to be throwing uh, those guys the ball in the years that follow the Ryan O'Connor and Zach Marker term here? Right. And I, I think you saw that, yeah, they definitely needed to turn things around in terms of their wide receiver room. They signed three guys to the receiver room in this class so far. You have Sean Wilson out of Georgia. You have Matt McKinley out of Florida, who is a current enrollee at, at UD right now. He's with the team in the spring. Really under-recruited guy, guy that really stepped up in his senior year and definitely a, a steal. Now with the scholarship move up to 85, we definitely had room for him and was excited to see him get added as well. And you also, you have Nick Tyree, who was explosive, seeing him join in the mix. And you also have some guys in-house that were here. Uh, I wanted to touch on, I said we offered two high school sophomores so far. One of them is wide receiver Justin Williams, who goes to Buckholz High School in Gainesville. Dan, the school may sound familiar to you because it's the same school where Blue Hens have nabbed a receiver recently in Jakari Kelly, who saw four games in action last season as a freshman. And I expect him to get early looks at the slot position opened up from Jordan Towson's departure. So it'd be pretty neat to see Kelly come in the mix here and also maybe see Williams in a few years' time, who in his sophomore year had over 1,000 receiving yards and 17 touchdowns for Buckled. So moving forward, it'd be fun if Williams followed Kelly's path and opening up a receiving well from Gainesville to Newark. And in terms of who's throwing to him, that'll be interesting to see. You, you have a couple guys here. You saw Nick Minicucci get a lot of action last season. You have Daniel Lipowski also in the class who got to see some early run. You have Braden Streeter coming in from Nashville, Tennessee, coming from a really strong program in Nashville. And Ryan Carty likes him as well. We've offered a, a quarterback as well, both as a junior and a sophomore. The sophomore quarterback we offered, his name is Keel McGriff. He plays on both sides of the ball. He plays as a, def- as a defensive back as well. I don't know if the last name sounds familiar to you. It might have been before our time of things, but – McGriff's father, Travis, is a Florida Gator legend at wide receiver. He won a national title there and had over 1,400 receiving yards there in his senior year and played a few years in the NFL as a third-round pick. So definitely some football in the family there. They're definitely looking at guys. And I think you just want to add to every position in this because you're moving up, and I think every position on the team can get better. On my account, we've offered – a quarterback, a running back, six receivers, five tight ends, and two offensive linemen so far to this current junior class. And on the defensive side, we've offered six defensive linemen on that 265-305 pound range. We've offered 12 linebackers and edges in that 220 to 240 range. I kind of all grouped them together in, on my recruiting tracker online. And then 14 defensive backs. Can't really classify them as corners and safeties because the program may offer a, a player that they vision – being on the outside or inside, depending on where they play in high school needed for their programs. 
and then three athletes that could go either way as a defensive back or a running back or receiver. And I've, I've emphasized the number 49 a few times, but I really wouldn't look too much in the counter. This comes back to the high amounts of offers from Florida and Georgia. A lot of these guys down there don't have any clue what the University of Delaware offers. So they're initiating that conversation by offering, saying, hey, we are interested in recruiting you to be a football player at the University of Delaware. So I really wouldn't look at the offers in a sense. I think that just means they're opening up the conversation with those guys in the South. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're recruiting them any differently than guys from this mid-Atlantic region, as you were saying, that currently don't have an offer. So it's really early. It's the exploratory stage, like I was saying. I really wouldn't get too much into the number yeah, of Yeah, don't get caught so up in the sheer uh, volume of offers. It certainly is. A, that makes it look pretty aggressive, and maybe aggressive is the right word for it, Bryce. But uh, opening up lines of communication, you're casting a wide net, not necessarily expecting everything to be converted when all is said and done, but you're establishing those, even those relationships perhaps with even more high school coaching staffs down that way as well and having a visibility there and having the awareness of, yep, this FBS thing, this whole transition, that it's going down and the class of 2025 is going to be a breaking through with that in the fall 25. But as far as the timeline you gave me, Bryce, I guess I'll invite you to wrap up with, uh, you know, defensively, particularly what stands out most there? Uh, Delaware's had transfers added on the defensive side as well. Uh, Kyer Price continues to uh, build the uh, Rutgers to Delaware pipeline in a sense. When you look at Kyer Price along the defensive line coming in for Delaware, that's just one name out of several uh, defensively that seems to stand out. Uh, what stands out for you? Our defense loves to get defensive backs in the lineup for sure. We like to play a free-flowing offense there in the back end. From the high school side of things, adding Makai Coutinho, who was really highly recruited at the FBS level, and things kind of dried up and we were able to snatch him. So that was really good. Same thing with Alex Nash, who I talked about from the Florida side of things, a defensive back who was originally committed to Central Michigan. And as things changed for Delaware, we were able to get him as well. From You see a similar mold in who we're bringing in, guys who were heavily recruited at the FBS level who haven't really seen the opportunities they may not want. Guys like Nate Evans, Jason Scott, Blake Matthews from Troy on the top of my head, linebacker. They're going to get a chance to compete for playing time, and I, I think they're all great ads. And I think you're already seeing that similarly with the class of 2025. We're offering – the majority of our offers so far have been on the defensive end, and I think that's because you just see a lot of talent that they want to snatch up. And you're seeing similar schools both regionally – for Conference USA and regionally in terms of schools around us in, in this region and the New England and, and Mid-Atlantic side of the ball. So we're going to be competing with schools, but I think the program has done a great job in getting people before and the defense side of the ball should be fun. It, you're exactly right about the number of defensive backs and the multiple looks that are given by D.C. Manny Rojas and his crew. It, it's got to be a fun unit to play on defensively because it's very, it's very versatile in that way. But I know the fans look forward to seeing FBS, FBS style pass rushers and not just FBS style might be the wrong word, but uh, guys who are getting home on the quarterback who can win one-on-ones at that uh, FBS caliber. Because on the other side, of course, naturally Delaware is going to be facing uh, FBS quarterbacks who maybe are that much more regularly going to be a headache with their mobility and their uh, size and, and difficulty taking down. So I definitely can see where you're I, – if I heard you correctly, you mentioned the defensive end spot in particular is, is a good one to uh, be tracking. Yeah, for sure. And 
We're definitely going to have a lot more updates as, as things carry on through the spring into the summer, because a lot of the commitments we saw in the most recent class came in the summertime. It's a year round process. It's, it's not just when they play on Saturdays and their winged helmets. So it's definitely always something fun to track right now. You're, you're in the exploratory phase, as I was saying, and they're hitting the recruiting trail hard. Now you're going to be seeing guys visit for spring practices. You're going to see guys March 16th, April 14th coming for junior days. And then you have camps coming in June 5th and July 20th. So when I said the offer is not really to look at, that's the easy part of the recruiting side of things, offering, opening up that conversation. Now it's getting these guys up to Newark. So that's the big thing that we want to track, see what we can get up here. So definitely more updates to come, but I definitely think this was a fun first recruiting rundown, and I think it's been a really fun episode in covering the hens. Definitely a long one. Credit to Delaware Sports for uh, giving us a lot to uh, process on. That's on a positive end. Well, we'll see. We'll see exactly how that 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 tone changes in March when everything will get more intense and tight. But uh, no, thanks, Bryce. It's been a, been a great one. Well, Dan, I will let you get down to the studio before the Blue Hens play against Penn on the lacrosse field, but. Last thing I wanted to ask you is, what can the listeners look out for after this episode in the incoming? Well, we've been cooking. We've episodes. been cooking. You and I have been in close touch, Bryce, in close contact as always, and we're planning out really exciting content on the terms of the CEA men's basketball tournament preview uh, variety. Really, really excited to share with you guys about a very special guest we'll bring on, a CEA men's basketball insider, really insightful voice in the whole college basketball world uh, coming onto our program uh, in short order. We've also had the pleasure of gathering uh, a number of uh, other media types and different folks who are well-connected to the other top six CEA teams in the men's basketball standings. We'll have a big roundtable where we'll discuss in a podcast episode what to know about each of these top programs in the CEA men's basketball standings, including Delaware, of course, and how that all combines to create the CEA tournament picture. So two big-time episodes coming up in terms of getting everybody set for conference bracket down in Washington, D.C. Thanks for that, Dan. Definitely a lot of CEA hoops coming our way after this. And until then, thanks for listening to the Feathers and Field Goals podcast. We'll see you next time.